Our first scripture reading today comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 14, verses 7 through 10, and then verses 19 through 22. Listen now to God's word that is to us and for us. Although our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. Our rebellions indeed are many, and we have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, its savior in time of trouble, why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler turning aside for the night? Why should you be like someone confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot give us help? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not forsake us. Thus says the Lord concerning this people, truly they have love to wander. They have not restrained their feet, Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Have you completely rejected Judah? Does your heart loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We look for peace, but find no good. For a time of healing, but there is terror instead. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our ancestors, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn on us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your, dis, do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Can any idols of the nations bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Is it not you, O Lord, our God? Set our hope on you, for it is you who do all this. The word of the Lord. What a joy it is to have our choristers back with us again this morning, already chanting the Psalms. Not an easy thing to do. Thank you all so much for being with us today. The New Testament lesson from the lectionary comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18 verses 9 through 14. I invite you once again to listen for the word of God. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves 
will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you make of the term sinner? Seems to be the word of the day. How does it strike you, that word sinner? Does it grate on your ear a little bit, maybe? It's really not a popular word anymore in today's lexicon, even within the church. And it's not really difficult to understand why. The word has often come to be used as an assignment to other people to draw distinctions one from another, to have an othering effect, and to cast aspersions outside of oneself. To call another person a sinner is to implicitly define oneself as righteous, or at least more righteous than another. This seems to have happened so often that the term has left a bad taste in many mouths. I know that sometimes it has in mine. We might wonder if there's much usefulness remaining for the word sinner in Christian parlance today. Well, it is a self-identified sinner who is the protagonist, the good guy, in Jesus' parable this morning. And in a rare move, Luke tells us ahead of time exactly what the parable's going to be about. He writes, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. And so we as readers are primed for an illustration of this dynamic. You see, there are those who trust in their own righteousness. And in doing so, discover a license to also regard others with contempt. And the Pharisee in the parable is a prototype. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, he begins, and then he goes on to list all of the people he is glad he is not like. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, and even this tax collector, he says, who, as we will see, is right there praying with him in the temple. He's the guy sitting next to him in the pews. And then the Pharisee presents his righteousness resume to God. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get, he says. And you know what? Good for him. I mean, this guy is really trying. After all, the only obligatory fast for everyone laid out in the Torah was one 24-hour fast on the Day of Atonement. And this guy is fasting twice a week for good measure. And the only obligatory tithes were on flocks, grain, wine, and oil. But this guy's tithing a tenth of everything he gets. The Pharisee really is doing a commendable job. He's going above and beyond. He's not just doing better than thieves, rogues, and adulterers. He's doing better than the average good person who is doing their best to do what God requires. But outward religious practice is not always an indication of inward religious piety. In other words, we can act like we are close to God without actually walking humbly 
with God. We can do lots of good stuff without really getting it. And so it is with this Pharisee who in the end addresses his prayer to God but is in effect praying to himself because he trusts in himself. He trusts in his own good works. And so we see that the Pharisee's righteousness is little more than self-righteousness. And that's the thing about righteousness. It's a good and commendable thing, but righteousness is always teetering on the brink of becoming self-righteousness. Because the minute that we begin to trust in our own righteousness, the minute we begin to consider our own goodness over and against that of another, the, mi- the minute we begin to feel ourselves, if you will, well, then we've toppled over into self-righteousness. And it happens so easily and so quickly sometimes. The problem with this Pharisee is not his righteousness, but his trust in his righteousness. I thank you that I'm not like other people, he begins. And there's lots of ways to pray, but that's not a great way to begin a prayer. Can you hear echoes of this prayer in our culture, in our church? I thank you that I'm not from that part of town. I thank you that I'm not as ignorant as the people supporting that candidate. I thank you that my child doesn't act like that. I thank you that I don't support that cause. You know, any righteousness that we manage to attain is really the fruit of God's Spirit at work in our lives. And so it should become a gift of gratitude that we give back to God for God's mercy working in our lives. But when we start acting like our righteousness is a product of our own superiority, then it becomes a poison. When we stand on our own righteousness, it becomes self-righteousness and draws us away from God because it draws us into ourselves. Meanwhile, Jesus contrasts the prayer of the Pharisee who trusts in himself with the prayer of the tax collector. Say what you want about this guy's behavior. He obviously doesn't trust in his own righteousness. He stands at a distance, doesn't even look up, and beats his chest. And it's what he says that's the most telling. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In fact, in the Greek, he calls himself the sinner, not as the one among many, but as the one most in need of mercy. The tax collector knows the truth about himself and the truth about his need for mercy. And so his prayer for mercy becomes the gateway into true righteousness, because his is a posture of receptivity to God. He trusts not in his own merits, but only in what God can do in him. I tell you, Jesus concludes, 
that classic line of his signaling his authority. I tell you, this man went home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus, like Luke at the beginning of the parable, makes the moral of the story perfectly clear. This short parable draws a sharp distinction for us between humility and self-exaltation, between righteousness and self-righteousness. The Pharisee builds his own case and stands in his own defense. He notes that he does even more than God requires and thereby, in effect, puts God into his debt. It's as if he wants to say, God, I do so much good that you owe me the same. I deserve the best of your blessings, O oh God. In his mind, his virtues shine so bright that they render his sins illusory. Meanwhile, the tax collector shows no such pretense, does he? He stands not on his own virtues, but at a distance. His head is not raised too high, but bowed in true prayer. And his words are not self-congratulatory, but pleading. Have mercy on me. Literally, make atonement for me, a sinner. The tax collector isn't looking for faults beyond his own. He isn't assigning the title sinner to anyone beyond himself. He's not interested in everyone else's faults. He's interested in his own need for mercy. And would that all of us who identify as Christian share his inner posture. Now, even if we all agree that it's better not to call other people sinners in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves, we may still wonder if the title sinner can be an edifying label to apply to ourselves. Some of us may embody a story in which the title was cruelly applied to us repeatedly by another, and thus its uses may have nullified, its abuses may have nullified its uses. Others may wonder if the term sinner can lead us away from despair rather than deeper into it in a world already plagued by high anxiety and low self-esteem. I often sense a desire among certain Christians, especially my fellow Presbyterians, to overcompensate for past misuses of the term sinner by saturating everything we say in affirmations of human goodness. The phrase sinner has almost vanished completely from our basic faith language. It's as if it's a bad word today, a kind of insult, maybe. And the intentions, I'm sure, are quite good. Guilt never should have been the lens or the means by which Christians pursued evangelism and attempts to shame people into faith conformity have done much harm to the gospel. We should never have spent so much time calling other people sinners and being thankful that we weren't like them. But the reason that we know God loves us so profoundly 
is precisely because of the mercy that God lavishes upon us. Mercy that we actually need because of our sin. After all, if we were essentially wonderful and flawless, would God's love have ever been proven to us, put to the test on the cross? Would it really be that amazing that God loves us just the way we are? Would God's mercy really leave an impression upon us? Perhaps the word sinner can still be a gateway through which we come to know God's mercy at work in our lives. Like the tax collector, the term still tells the truth about ourselves when we stand before God, and it sends us on our way justified, that is, forgiven and embraced by the mercy we find in our God, the God who seeks and saves the lost. Friends, we must come to trust, not that we are good enough, but that God's mercy is good enough for us. God loves us, not because we're inherently righteous, but even though we make mistakes. God loves us, not because we are good people, though we may be, but God loves us even though we fall short. Maybe what we all need isn't more trust in ourselves is it more faith in our own righteousness? But rather more assurance that God's mercy still comes to humble sinners who ask for it with open palms. So may our prayer be a prayer not of gratitude for how great we are, but a prayer of gratitude for the mercy of God, which God so freely gives to all those who seek it. Thanks be to God. Amen.